We're in a kind of series. Last Sunday I preached on the topic on what do answers to prayer depend. And I'm going to pick that up again next Sunday and try to answer the question, how much faith do you have to have in order to get an answer to prayer? Today, the topic is pray for kings and all in high positions. Now, the Apostle Paul has a word for us people that we should hear all the time, but it's especially fitting for us to hear the Sunday before a presidential inauguration, I think. And the word comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And I think if you have a Bible, you will want to follow along as we look at this text throughout the message. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 to 4. That's our focus. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a life, a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. This is good and it is acceptable in sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the main point of those verses, very simply, is you ought to pray for people. And then there are three things about this command to pray for other people that Paul does here that we'll look at. First, he says it is of paramount importance. First of all, then, I command you or I urge you to pray. Second, He mentions the wideness of its scope. Pray for all men, especially kings, people in high positions. And third, he mentions what the content of that prayer should be. Among other things, there should be thanksgivings for them. And we should pray that our lives can be spent in peace and tranquility. I believe to the end that men might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Lord, let there not be anyone whose heart is so hard that the word does not sink in today and establish itself and change our lives, especially our prayer life. Grant, I pray, that we have a heart to sense the paramount importance of prayer for other people. And grant that our hearts be wide enough to embrace the wideness of the scope of this prayer for all men and kings and all in high positions. And that our hearts might be pure enough to pray for those things that we ought to pray for, for the reasons that we ought to pray. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with that first point then. The first emphasis that Paul has is that these prayers for other people, all people, are of paramount importance. It's number one, apparently, on his list. Why? Why does he think it's so important? As I tried to answer that question, the way that I found help was to look at the connection between verse 1 and what preceded. Notice that little word, then, or therefore, probably, in your version, in verse 1. 
First of all, then, or first of all, therefore, I urge that you pray for all men. That alerts us to the fact that Paul thinks what he's commanding here follows from something he's just said immediately preceding. Now, that's why I had Tom read verses 18 to 20 as well as our text. In verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1, Paul has urged Timothy mainly to do this. Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then he warns them that if he gives up a good conscience, rejects it and the need for it, he can make shipwreck of faith, like Hymenaeus and Alexander did, whom Paul handed over to Satan, that they might not learn to blaspheme. A good conscience is a conscience that does not condemn us for what we do and that approves of what we do do. Did I say that right? Does not condemn us for what we do and approves us for what we do. That means, therefore, that the reason Paul is saying you've got to have a clear conscience in order to maintain faith is that if we do things that our conscience constantly condemns, what's going to happen is something like this. This is the way my experience works anyway. See if yours doesn't also. If I fall into a habit that my conscience condemns, my conscience starts to say to me, Piper, all that talk about trusting Christ and hoping in God is a lot of hot air. Because if you really trusted in Christ and hoped in God, you wouldn't go on breaking your conscience like that. And therefore, conscience starts to bore holes in the belly of the ship of faith. And it starts to sink. And your confidence in the reality of your own conversion starts to melt away because you're constantly acting against your own conscience. And either one of two things is going to happen. Either we confirm the genuineness of our faith by changing our behavior and plugging up those holes of conscience, or we go on and we show that our ship of faith was never seaworthy in the first place, and we sink into unbelief and blasphemy like Hymenaeus and Alexander did. And therefore, Paul's charge to Timothy to hold to faith and maintain a good conscience are tremendously important commands or admonitions. And anything that Paul can say that will help us maintain a good conscience ought to be welcomed with open arms. And I think that's what he does in verse 1 of chapter 2. Since you must keep a good conscience in order not to make shipwreck of faith, therefore, I urge you, first of all, pray for all men. Now, in order to see why it is that failing to pray for all men will give us a bad conscience, and jeopardize our faith, I think we have to ask, what is it that for a Christian pricks his conscience in relation to other people? And the answer to that, of course, is clear from the whole Bible. All of God's instruction is summed up in two commandments. 
Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, anything that a Christian does or leaves undone, which is unloving, will give him a bad conscience or ought to give him a bad conscience if it's not seared. Now, with that as a foundation, I think it starts to become clear why we must pray for other people in order to keep a clean conscience and so not make shipwreck of faith. I see three reasons why prayer for other people is of first importance. And that's what I'm after to explain. How come he says it's of first importance in keeping a clear conscience and not making shipwreck of faith? First, prayer taps the power of God on behalf of other people. I could try to help you as a pastor. You could try to help your neighbors. You could try to help Ronald Reagan, Governor Cui, Mayor Fraser, without praying for them. And you might do a little good. And judged from a limited perspective, you could do perhaps much good in the world's eyes. But the little good that we could do without praying isn't worthy to be compared with the great good that God can do if he, in response to our prayer, starts working on behalf of another person. So if we want to do what's best for people, if we really love them, then I think of first importance will be to pray that God work for them. The first thing you do for a person, if you love them, is ask God to work on their behalf. And of course, the way that God answers that prayer is almost always going to involve your labor of love on their behalf. But what can be accomplished through prayer is vastly more than you could accomplish without prayer. There's a second reason why I think it's of first importance to keep our conscience clear through praying for other people. It's the easiest step of love. You don't even have to get out of bed to pray for kings and all those who are in high positions. It doesn't take any great physical strain, no great financial output. Of all the forms that love can take, Prayer is probably the easiest. You just get down on your knees and rest and talk to the Lord about what you want him to do for other people. And isn't it true that if we are unwilling to do for other people what is easiest, then it's very unlikely that we will be willing to do what's hard on their behalf. And therefore, it makes sense, doesn't it, that Paul would begin by saying, of first importance, if you want to love other people, is that you pray for all men. Third reason why I think it's of paramount importance in keeping a clear conscience and so not making shipwreck of faith. Prayer reaches farther than anything else in its effects that we can do. It reaches farther in its effects than anything else we can do. Before there were those satellites up there uh, going around the earth, we could send a live television program from coast to coast, but we couldn't send it, could we? 
all the way around to the other side of the world live. But now, if we want to get it to the other side of the world live immediately, we send it away from the world and then it comes back to the world. Pretty simple. Get it live immediately. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the efficacy and extension of prayer. Without prayer, we can have an influence on a limited circumference of people. We can work hard and try to do good for them. And if we wait long enough, maybe by osmosis, our influence will spread all the way around the world. But God's influence is everywhere and immediate. And therefore, doesn't it make sense that, first of all, if we want to help other people, if you want to bless the most people in the shortest amount of time with the most blessing, it just makes sense that you'd start by going to the satellite, going to God. When a, a broadcaster wants to get a message to the greatest amount of people in the shortest amount of time, you can be sure that's going to happen today if those hostages are released before this service is over or before we meet tonight. We're all going to know about it because of those satellites. Um, if a broadcaster wants to do that, isn't it interesting that paradoxically, to get the message quickest this way, he sends it that way. And that's what we should do for other people. To bless them quickest this way, we should look that way first up to God. So, if we would not make shipwreck of faith, but rather keep a clear conscience, therefore, we must pray for all men because of these three reasons. Prayer taps the power of God for other people. Prayer is the first and easiest step of love. And prayer reaches farther in its effects than anything else that we can do. And that last point brings us to the second chief emphasis of this text. Namely, the scope of Paul's command to pray. He says, make supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions. Have you ever been tempted to pray like this? God bless all men with the best possible blessing. I'll give you the glory. Amen. Covers it all. You can't add anything to that. I don't think. As long as you define blessing big enough, that's all. That's it. Why don't we pray like that? Say that once a day, maybe. Once a week. As God can remember a week. We don't. Why don't we pray like that? God has not taught us to pray in broad, sweeping generalities, has he? A text like this, though, might tempt us to do that. Pray for all men. Becomes a temptation to start saying, bless the world. Bless the four billion. Amen. But God has not taught us to pray like that. Jesus could not have spent a whole night in prayer, let alone many, if that's the way he prayed, could he? Many of us wonder, how do you spend a night in prayer anyway? God bless the missionaries, amen. It's a great blessing to have our daily bread. It's a great blessing to have our trespasses forgiven. It's a great blessing 
Not to be led into temptation, but to be delivered from evil. But we don't pray. Jesus didn't teach us to pray. Lord, bless us. Amen. He taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have not been taught to pray in broad sweeping generalities. We have been taught to pray for particular kinds of problems. And when Paul wanted help for himself, he asked the churches, pray for me in particular. Don't just pray for the missionary cause, for example. Therefore, I do not think that we will satisfy the demand of 1 Timothy 2.1 if we say something like, God bless all men everywhere, amen. What does it mean? How can we satisfy it? If we give Paul a sympathetic reading here, that's what you always should try to give anything you read. Give it a sympathetic reading. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the writer. I think what he's going to say is something like this. Timothy, push out the boundaries of your concern. Don't let your prayers be limited to any group or any kind of people. Enlarge the circumference of your love, Timothy. Don't be provincial or sectarian or elitist or nationalistic or racist in your prayers, Timothy. Let your prayers embrace all kinds of people, high and low, white and black, Democrats and Republicans, Soviet premiers and Iranian ayatollahs. Enlarge the heart of your prayers. Timothy, go to school at Calvary and learn to hate the bigotry and the racism of the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis, but to pray with earnest yearning for those men and women. Isn't Paul's point the same as Jesus? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and do what? Pray for those who persecute you and you may become so that you may become sons of your father who in heaven. Or to put it another way, Timothy... There is, no, there is no category of people of whom it can be said, you ought not to pray for those. There is none. And here's a message for our day, isn't it? The 1980s are becoming the decade of hate. And oh, how easy it is for Christians to be sucked into one group and start hating the other group. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24:11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because wickedness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. Words from uh, Robert Frost that some of you know. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. 
May it not be said of Bethlehem Baptist Church that we've made any contribution to the destruction of the world through icy hate. But let it be said of the Christians at Bethlehem and oh, of all Christians, behold how they love one another. Look how they do good to those who hate them. Look how they bless those who curse them. Look how they pray for those who abuse them. Look at the parameters of their prayer. Why? There's no boundary. Isn't that the point of 1 Timothy 2, 1? And if we pray like that and act like that, won't people begin to say, there must be a God of grace in the heavens and He's got a peculiar people on earth and in Minneapolis at this corner, people who are not conformed to this age or to this decade. And now, after he stressed the wideness of the circumference, for some reason, Paul focuses in on kings and all in high positions. Pray for kings and all in high positions. Why? Why did he, why did he narrow in here? It's clear from verses 4 through 7 that Paul wants to emphasize that nobody be excluded from our goodwill. For nobody is beyond the grace of God. Why then do kings and people in high positions come in for special mention? I think there are at least two reasons, perhaps more, but I'll just mention two. The first is this. There, there are characteristics, aren't there, about leaders that make it hard to pray for them. At least hard for those early Christians to pray for them. And I think still for us in many ways. One, for example, of those characteristics is that they are so distant and so remote, if not uh, visually or in miles, then in accessibility anyway. They're so remote and it's hard to pray for somebody earnestly with heart yearning that you don't even know or don't ever see. And yet Paul says that difficulty must be overcome. We must pray for the Emperor Nero. We must pray for the governor, Gallio. We must pray for proconsuls. And we must pray for Pilate and Herod and the like. Those people must be prayed for if you don't ever see them. They may seem remote to you. They are not remote to God. And you can get as close to them through prayer as any of their closest advisors. Here's another example of a characteristic that makes them hard to pray for. They are often godless people, insensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That was almost universally true in Paul's day. And I think in our day, if you take all the countries of the world, and let's not just limit this command to America, it's probably still true today. And in our own country, where the Chrysler Imperial is called the born-again car. I don't get excited when a politician says he's had a religious experience. It doesn't matter where or when we have lived. If we're going to pray for those who are kings and all in high positions, we are going to wind up praying 
mostly for people who are hostile to or indifferent to our faith. And that seems to be a stumbling block for many people. What do I pray for them? Well, Paul says, don't hesitate to pray. First of all, God can save. God can change kings and those in high positions. And second, he uses unbelievers in high positions to accomplish his purposes anyway, whether they believe or not. A couple of examples. In Isaiah 10 in the Old Testament, God takes the wicked king of Assyria and turns him into a rod of his wrath when he wants to punish his people Israel. And then he casts him aside because of his arrogance when he's through with him. Once Nebuchadnezzar, the great proud king of Babylon, said this, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? You know what God did? Took away his reason and made him eat grass like an ox until he learned this lesson. Daniel 4, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says, The dominion of the Most High is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? No king, no president, no Soviet premier or Iranian ayatollah can stay his hand when he has purposed to do a thing. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, the wise man said. Many are the plans of a man and a king, but the purposes of the Lord will be established. Proverbs 19.21 Therefore, we have strong encouragement to pray because God rules over men whether they believe him or not. God reigns and none can stay his hand. Now, one implication of that is that our prayers for these kings and these people in high positions will not only be for their conversion or even their sanctification. That we must pray for or we disobey our Lord Jesus. But we will go beyond that and we will pray that God's good saving purposes be accomplished through them anyway, even if they are impenitent. And that's the second reason why I think Paul mentions the need to pray for kings and those in high positions, namely because God is able to do so much good in the world through people in high positions. Paul's thought seems to be something like this. If your prayers are to do the most good for the most number, then surely you must include in your prayers those people whose decisions create the conditions in which the gospel prospers. That is a long sentence. I'll say it again. Surely if you want your prayers to do the most good in the world, you must include in those prayers the people whose decisions create the conditions in which the gospel prospers. It is important to pray for leaders because the conditions they create either impede or advance the gospel. Now, 
We can confirm that Paul is thinking that way here and arguing like that if we go to our third and last emphasis, namely the content of what we should be praying for these kings and what Paul says here. I mentioned it earlier. I'll only mention the word thanksgiving here briefly in passing. It's very interesting to me. I'd love to spend a lot more time thinking with you about how, how you can give thanks for all men. You ponder that. Uh, I'll just say this. Even a bad king, Paul thinks, is better than anarchy. Paul is in a Roman prison or is under house arrest in Rome when he writes 1 Timothy. The emperor is Nero. In a couple of years, he's going to put Paul to death. Probably he died in the lion's arena. Now, Paul is saying what he says under those conditions. Therefore, he is not naive when he says, make thanksgivings for all men, for kings and all in high positions. Thank God for Nero. Why? How can he say that? At least for this reason. Paul's perspective on the world is so good. It's so big. It goes above and beyond his own little life or even his own little great ministry. The emperor who puts Paul to death in Rome keeps peace in the provinces where the gospel is spreading like wildfire. And for that, Paul is very thankful. So our prayers for kings and for leaders and for all men should be seasoned with thanksgiving. But the main thing Paul says to pray for is this, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and respectfulness. Now, taken by itself, that might seem to fly right in the face of everything I've said. Is it really the case that in the last analysis, the only reason we pray for leaders is so that we might have the good life? so that we might have peace and tranquility and build our estates. How many professing Christians seem to think so? But that would be a terrible misunderstanding of this text, wouldn't it? Because verses 3 and 4 sharpen the focus of what Paul is really after. Why, he answers, why pray that we have peace and tranquility. Answer, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God approves of peace and tranquility because he approves of the advance of the gospel. Peace is not the main thing. Salvation is the main thing. Tranquility is not the main goal. The knowledge of the gospel of truth is the main goal. May we never forget it, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are exiles here in America. And I would say the same thing if I were talking to the Russians, the Iranians, the Mexicans, the Brazilians. We are exiles here in this land. We are not at home in America, Russia, Iran, Egypt, Israel, or anywhere on this earth, our commonwealth is in heaven. We do not pray, I do not pray, 
simply for the prosperity of any land. I pray for the magnificent spread of the saving purposes of God in every land and for whatever conditions it takes to achieve that. And to that end, I say, Almighty God, ruler of heaven and earth, grant to President-elect Ronald Reagan, to Governor Cui, to Mayor Fraser, to the Ayatollah, to all the intermediaries in high positions, grant them to make those decisions that will create the conditions in which the good news of Jesus Christ will prosper and more men will be saved and the knowledge of the truth will abound and cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's the way I pray for leaders and I think that's what Paul is teaching us to do here.